Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts on the channel, Dr. Randa Melcher, and I'm very interested today to be learning about a topic that, as this book uh, discusses, is actually everywhere in a lot of ways, but is something that I think a lot of people, myself included, don't really think about. Um, And the book is titled Knowledge Regulation and National Security in Post-War America, published by the University of Chicago Press in 2022. And it's the first historical study of export control regulation, the thing I personally did not know very much about, as a tool for sharing and withholding of knowledge, something very close to the hearts and the work of many of us, um, myself included. So with us today to discuss their book and tell us all about this very fascinating thing that probably has impacted a lot of our lives without us realizing it, it are the two authors, Dr. Mario Daniels and Dr. John Krieger. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Could we please start off with each of you introducing yourselves a bit, your academic backgrounds, and then explain why you wanted to write this book and why you wanted to write it together? Shall I start, Mario? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so um, I was originally trained as a physical chemist and was working in a research laboratory Uh, in South Africa before I decided to do the history and philosophy of science. I did a second PhD at the University of Sussex and then became very engaged in writing history, the history of big institutions, CERN and the European Space Agency were my first big projects. And then I moved over to Georgia Tech in Atlanta, where I began working on the relationship between science, technology and American foreign relations. And while while in Atlanta, I realized that the FBI was extremely present on my campus at Georgia Tech. And its aim was to warn academics about the way in which China, as it was put at the time, was stealing its way up the, ec- up, the, up the economic ladder at the expense of American universities. And this led me to wonder how that was possible and how it was happening. And I realized that uh, this was an ever, ever-present concern of the FBI and the American government, and that export controls were in place uh, to try to stop this happening. Um, in the course of giving a lecture in Germany about this topic, I met Mario Daniels, and I realized that he too was interested in this topic. And about seven years ago, we began to work together on a book on that topic, and this is the result of our work. Yeah, and I'm Mario Daniels. I'm currently um, a lecturer in uh, Amsterdam at the Deutschland Institute, uh, which is a part of the University of Amsterdam. And before that, I, I taught for five years as the DAAD visiting professor at Georgetown University. And I'm an historian of science and technology. And uh, export controls actually uh, entered uh, my research interest, I think something like 10, 12, 13 years ago by accident, because I was interested in actually uh, discourses of uh, economic espionage in the US in the early 1980s. And one of the things that popped up time and again was uh, this kind of nexus between fears of uh, Soviet espionage on the one hand 
and then um, discussing uh, using export controls as a way of fighting back what um, people back then and still today call illegal technology transfer. And back then, I just did not know what export controls were and how they worked. And so I started to dive into this sphere and uh, became fascinated. Uh, the interesting thing is that no one really cared and knew, no one really knew uh, much about export controls. And um, it was actually really uh, kind of a, uh, a lucky um, um, incident that that I met John because he actually was really into export controls and we figured out that if we wanted to write about this in a meaningful way we actually need each other because it's a hard thing to do research on and so that's where where we started and at some point uh, we started writing an article and uh, starting there we thought maybe it's time to write a book. And that's what we have today. Wonderful. Um, it's always nice to hear kind of how people get interested in something. And then quite often it does seem to be something like running into each other at a conference um, that brings people together into a book. Um, but it is clear that I certainly didn't know very much about this topic before reading the book. And both of you came to this topic kind of not knowing what it was at, at the beginning. So I'd like to start off with sort of laying out some of these foundations uh, to build the rest of the discussion on, which hopefully you do in the book as well. So can we start off with explaining a bit about what we need to know around the concept of economic security and why it's important for an export control system? Yeah, so um, I think I, I will start uh, thinking about mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. um, so economic security is, is, a, is a strange term, but at the same time, it's used quite widely today uh, by um, actors in the U.S. government, but also in journalistic accounts uh, on especially Chinese-American uh, relations. And uh, we did uh, in our book a little bit of a history of uh, this term and this idea of economic security. So first of all, it's, it's, a, it's interesting because it, it is a term that converges to uh, different things. So on the one hand, it talks really or thinks uh, a lot about what markets are and what economics is and how economics and state power are interrelated. Um, so it's very much uh, about uh, thinking about uh, the relationship between markets and states. And then on the other hand, you have this very complex uh, and um, historically grown uh, idea of national security in the uh, U.S. context. So that's a term that uh, entered the uh, U.S. dictionary actually only in the 1940s and uh, became a shorthand for uh, almost everything that is somehow related to military issues in the U.S., but also to um, the defense industry, to um, inner security. Um, and it, this term economic security actually uh, came up the first time, really, in the in the 1980s, uh, facing the challenges of uh, Japanese um, uh, competition uh, on global markets. Uh, American uh, national security thinkers uh, more and more became involved in thinking about the relationship between national security on the one hand and economics on the other hand, and they started to basically merge those two terms. Um, and uh, this term is actually really a kind of a 
conceptual frame for thinking about uh, security and economics in the same context. John, do you want to, to add to that? Yes, I think you asked also about the connection with export controls. Is that correct, Miranda? Yes. Right. So I'd, I'll just elaborate on that a little. When export controls were set up in 1949, uh, they had three purposes. It was to, uh, to stop the, uh, the, the export of, substance, of materials that were in short supply during wartime for foreign policy purposes and national security purposes. National security was understood classically in terms of exporting goods which would help the enemy to challenge the, the United States militarily. But gradually, people began to realize that that was not sufficient, that we didn't only have to protect the export of goods to the Soviet bloc. Of course, this is a Cold War concept to the Soviet bloc, simply because they threatened America's military power. It also became clear that they they could also threaten America's military power by undermining undermining America's economic base, its its techno-industrial base, especially its economic base in high technology. And thus, the notion of economic security began to gain traction officially, importantly, during the 1980s, as Mario explained. And after that, it became totally embedded in export control regulations that you would limit the exports to the Soviet bloc and ultimately to uh, any any rival, including a friendly nation, that would undermine either the economic power of the nation or, by extension, its military power. And in fact, uh, it was central today in the conflict with China, because China, although it's now understood as a growing military threat, was understood originally as predominantly an economic threat to the United States. And for President Trump, economic security is national security and protecting the nation. He made that explicitly himself. So now economic security is one of the key rationales for the state interfering in markets in particular in order to protect the United States' national capacity in, in both economic, techno-industrial development and in military strength. Thank you both for laying that out sort of conceptually and a broad historical view of sort of where that um, comes up. And to just finish off our sort of foundational bit, um, there's a few other terms that sort of come up in these discussions, particularly, uh, John, around sort of China and US policy options. There's intellectual property, there's enforcement, there's trade regulations. How do these concepts relate to export control regulations specifically? Export controls are intended to regulate trade, um, especially in high technology and related to that knowledge and know-how in the interests of national security expanded to, to mean also economic security. And so this is a cluster of terms which hang together and make sense of export controls. We mustn't forget that the American state only reluctantly interferes in the market. After all, it is a country that promotes uh, free markets. It seemed to be the champion of free markets, sometimes even the champion of neoliberalism, which is a very small state. So it has to justify interfering in the markets and in firms' determination to export into global markets. And appealing to security, either economic or national more generally, is an, is, it provides the state with a justification and a lever for imposing constraints on what kind of technology, knowledge, and know-how, as well as what kind of people can circulate with that knowledge um, in order to, to ensure that America's strategic leadership and strategic economic and military advantage is not undermined by exports into rival countries, above all, of course, in the, early, in the Cold War, 
the Soviet Union and the communist bloc in general. Yeah, and and I think what is important, because uh, we run into this problem time and again when we discuss our project, is that export controls are really uh, um, their own regulatory realm. So very often what happens if if you discuss uh, export controls, uh, people who don't know very much about them uh, tend to mix them up with different regulatory strands uh, or um, legal strands. So uh, intellectual property would be one or secrecy classification would be the other one. And it is important to to keep in mind that uh, export controls are separate. So they have their own logic, they have their own regulatory basis, they have their own laws, and they have their own practices of regulating uh, knowledge in international trade uh, and international scientific relations. Um, So just to give you one example, um, because that's the the typical thing, You know, people know a lot more about classification. They mix up uh, export controls and classification. But one thing that is quite interesting is that um, export controls uh, regulate unclassified knowledge. So whereas uh, classification uh, operates along the divide between openness and secrecy, Uh, Export controls are basically targeting a realm between openness and secrecy. So they basically say there is knowledge out there that is not dangerous enough to justify classification, but is actually too sensitive to be allowed to uh, roam freely uh, across national borders. Uh, Cold War um, bureaucrats sometimes called called that the gray zone. And in this gray zone, so to speak, uh, uh, are export controls regulating uh, what uh, bureaucrats today sometimes call sensitive but unclassified knowledge or controlled unclassified information. So that's a completely different set of ideas and regulations. And that's exactly what we try to to show in our book, that there's an entire world of regulations that usually is invisible to a lot of people, as you uh, mentioned at the very beginning, Miranda. So this then, it's very helpful to have you both explain sort of why it's invisible in some ways. It almost gets overlooked because there's a bunch of other things that seem similar. Um, But we do, there is this system. Can you tell us about kind of where it comes from? We've mentioned sort of the early Cold War, but can you tell us a bit about the specifics and World War II and where this system begins? Yeah, I I can give you a little bit of of, uh, information about that. So um, historically, uh, the U.S. um, uh, government did not really uh, use export controls during peacetime. So historically, if you you look back to the 19th century or even uh, further back, you will uh, realize that export controls are actually usually closely tied to wartime. So it's a wartime measure. Um, so whenever you have uh, a, a war, you start to regulate, for example, the circulation of goods. Um, and this was basically uh, really kind of the, the traditional way of thinking about export controls up to the 1940s. So, uh, for example, during World War I, when the, war, war, uh, when the U.S. entered the war, immediately an export control re- regime was put in, into place. But in the interwar period, it was dismantled. 
so no export controls there. And that changed basically in the 1940s. So when the U.S. entered uh, World War II, uh, export controls were uh, immediately put in place again. And in 1945, after uh, uh, the the end of the war, there was this question, uh, should we again get rid of export controls? Because they regulate peaceful trade, right? They regulate peaceful uh, interactions crossing national borders. And there's this short period, um, basically between the end of the the, uh, Second World War and the onset of the Cold War, where there were actually debates about getting rid of export controls completely again. But then when the Soviet Union uh, was seen more and more as the next enemy, um, export controls became something that uh, uh, was seen as something important uh, again to basically um, push back against uh, the Soviet Union economically. But even then, uh, the U.S. government thought of, about export controls as something that should not be uh, there forever. So there was always a sunset provision in, in the law basically saying we should get rid of of export controls in the next five years. Um, And for the entire Cold War and for the entire period up to uh, basically the Trump administration, export controls were always seen as something that would be dismantled at some point, (laughs) at least in in theory. In practice, that was not the case anymore. Um, And so uh, they entered the picture basically with war, and then with the Cold War. Uh, and they were then institutionalized. I think that's also important to see where export controls are actually really, um, where they have their home, uh, within the uh, vast bureaucracy of the federal state. So to up to the present day, there are basically three main agencies. That's the Department of Commerce, the Department of State, and the Department of the Defense. And they together... Uh, formulate um, the regulations and implement them. John? I would would just add that they have, of course, their own history originally, and that's the way we tend to think about them. They were intended predominantly to to, uh, control the export of commodities. Um, But very rapidly, people began to understand that if you, shall shall we say, you you export, shall we say, uh, a petroleum manufacturing plant to another country, that might come under export control regulations. What about the knowledge required to maintain, operate, and improve that petroleum plant. And very rapidly, the government realized that, no, we also need to control knowledge, the knowledge that circulates along with the commodity in order to make it function better in a manufacturing situation. And that's the dimension that we concentrate on. We concentrate on the knowledge because we're historians of science and technology, and because also it's such it's such a surprising thing to think that export controls actually also uh, target knowledge and know-how and technology. And this was not at central originally, but gradually moved center stage, as we explained in our book, and became crucially important from the 1970s, which I think we're going to talk about a bit later, uh, for all sorts of special reasons that we can discuss. So it's, 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 it's the knowledge, the technology and the know-how that goes with commodities that are deemed essential to American economic and military strength that we focus on in this book. And that's predominantly managed by the Department of Commerce in consultation with the other departments that that Mario mentioned and the intelligence community. 
I'm glad you mentioned know-how because I wanted to ask about that. Um, first of all, it is called know-how. That does seem to be like a term of art in a way in these departments. And it does seem to evolve. So I'm wondering if you could maybe either of you, both of you, tell us a bit about kind of why know-how becomes such an important thing. Yeah, but know-how is mentioned. It is, it, is in, it is mentioned and thought about long before historians of science and technology spoke about it. Know-how is another word for tacit knowledge. And know-how is understood generally as kind of knowledge that you cannot formulate uh, in, in diagrams or formulate in, in equations or in texts. It's knowledge that you acquire by doing things. Typically, by, know-how is what you need in order to ride a bicycle. You can't actually give somebody a set of instructions on how to ride a bicycle. They get on a bike and they learn how to do it. And in learning that, they acquire tacit knowledge or know-how. Um, and that's a crucial thing that's controlled for a very important reason. If you, if you teach somebody how to manufacture a plant, if you export a plant and show somebody how to manage it and maintain it, that might simply be that you can information that you can pass on in a technical manual. But if you pass on to them know-how, it, you explain to them how to do the intangible, the invisible things that make that plant function, and especially that make it perform better than it's, it, it might otherwise do. And in transferring know-how to somebody else, this informal, tacit knowledge, you provide them with the capacity to manufacture their own plant and to improve their own plant. And that's where the worry is, that in providing somebody with the capacity to improve the performance of something that they buy from you through the set of tacit skills which they acquire, through technical consultancy and training, working in your factory, working with with the plant itself, they can build their own and build them better. And so in that way, they can challenge your technological lead and narrow the technological gap between you and, of course, compete with you on the market with goods that are more sophisticated and competitive than those of your own. So know-how became a deep, deeply worrying issue for the United States government because it would break the uh, and narrow the technological gap between them and their partners and in that narrow their uh, and reduce their technological leadership. But Mari, you have something to say too, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, so first of all, I want, want to emphasize this idea of the technological lead because that we show in our book that it's really one of the key concepts to understand why the U.S. government is actually interested in regulating uh, knowledge exchanges. So th- the idea is uh, that um, military prowess depends on uh, a technological leadership. So you have to be number one. You have to have the the, the uh, innovation lead. You have to have the fanciest technology, so to speak, uh, in order to provide your military with the most modern weapons. Um, so this is basically something that is also born in the 1940s uh, during World War II, this idea that you have to invest in science and technology to uh, feed your um, military machinery with uh, better weapons. So the, the Manhattan Project is uh, the most um, widely known uh, example for this kind of uh, thinking. Um, and this idea of being the leader actually uh, is then paving the way for thinking about how to regulate actually the exchange of knowledge. Because as, as uh, John pointed out, if knowledge is uh, um, basically shared with the wrong powers, you could actually um, be faced, for example, with uh, fighting them with 
weapons of the same quality you have. So export controls actually really start uh, to regulate knowledge because of that. And uh, in the very beginning, uh, thinking about knowledge meant not least to think about information. So kind of straightforward, right? Blueprints, uh, information in, in, in the press, information in, in uh, scientific journals. Uh, but step by step, uh, the national security bureaucracy uh, figured out that this is actually not really the, the very heart of, of knowledge. It is part of learning processes that you read, basically. But they figured out that uh, what John called tacit, tacit knowledge is actually really important. Uh, and that's why export controls are not just regulating uh, things and information. They started early on also to regulate people. So uh, basically saying uh, uh, that certain uh, scientists should not travel to certain countries because they could share certain uh, kinds of knowledge. So know-how is basically part of a larger uh, epistemology, basically, of uh, really of, of a world of national security and weapons where the question is what kind of knowledge is actually important to uh, our national power. And that know-how I find really fascinating. I'm glad you kind of gave the examples of, you know, a bike or a plant um, that helps understand why that's considered such a danger. Um, but so far we've talked about it primarily in the context of United States and its potential enemies. But as you show in the book, export controls uh, do have some pretty important implications for U.S. allies as well. So can you maybe tell us about that, perhaps around the Korean War? Yeah, um, maybe I start and then can John can chime in. Right. So um, what... What we explained so far is basically the early history of, of the uh, export control system. So in, in the U.S., the national basis of the system is, is a federal law. It's called the Export Control Act of 1949. Uh, and that regulated basically um, how export controls should, should work on, on the national level. But immediately, uh, in the context of the early Cold War, it became clear that if you wanted to control technologies and uh, c- control certain, uh, also certain kinds of trade, you have you need to have your allies on board, because uh, there is there is uh, it it seems not to good to be a good idea to regulate American knowledge, and then the Soviets would buy it from West Germany or from Great Britain, and so uh, the U.S. Uh, pushed basically the allies, to form uh, a specific export control institution. It's called COCOM, Coordinating Committee. So it has a very uh, uh, neutral name, but it's basically something like um, uh, an economic sister of uh, NATO. So you have almost all NATO partners uh, 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 being also members of COCOM. And COCOM uh, was also formed in 1949-1950, just before uh, the Korean War. And um, COCOM actually showed uh, the importance of multilateral export controls during the the Korean War. So uh, the Allies ramped up, uh, basically, uh, their export control regulations, uh, 
in order to avoid that uh, the Korean uh, army uh, and uh, the Chinese and the Soviet militaries would uh, be able to acquire technology in the West. Uh, so far, so good. So there was a consensus. But after the uh, end of the uh, Korean War, it became clear that the Allies and the U.S. have very different understandings of the relationship of national security uh, and, and trade and economics. So whereas the U.S. was uh, uh, emphasizing time and again the importance of containment and national security, the Allies, uh, especially uh, countries like uh, Great Britain or West Germany, uh, pressed for more trade liberalization because they were much more dependent economically uh, on trading with uh, Eastern European countries. And so in this, in this uh, constellation, you can see that multilateralism is actually really an important part of export controls. But you can already see in the early Cold War that there were conflicts about the uh, reach and the, um, and the scope of export controls uh, in the international realm. Yeah, I would develop that a little bit. I'd rather go into a bit of detail at this point, maybe, because I think also it's important to realize that, uh, well, first of all, let me stress that every export requires a license. Export, exporting from the United States is not a right, it's a privilege, and every export requires a license. Basically, there are two kinds of license, a general license and a validated license. And general licenses, a general license is something that simply says, for certain kinds of things, shall we say, uh, a technical manual that you use for selling your products or educational material used in universities, you can send that to anybody you like in the world. You don't need to actually ask us permission to do it you have a general license to do it. Validated licenses are those in which you have to ask the Department of Commerce if you may share that particular technology with, uh, with a person you're exporting it to. And here the world is divided up into multiple layers of countries, but it is important to realize that obviously you needed a validated license, shall we say, to sell a computer to the Soviet Union. But at the same time, um, anybody selling a computer to the Soviet Union also had to, or selling, shall we say, a computer to Germany, had to, in, in say, 1965 or 1970, had to get a validated license to do that to a friendly country. And the reason was explicitly said to be to stop Germany or the, the firm in Germany, diverting was the language used, that technology to the Soviet Union. This suggests a certain lack of trust between the United States and its allies. And it, it, it imposed these licensing requirements even on friendly part on members of the of, of COCOM and its allies in order to stop them sharing that technology or diverting that technology to the Soviet bloc. So yes, and these export licenses, these validated licenses, were clearly needed uh, to justify your selling a, pr a product to, shall we say, the Soviet bloc if it was a sensitive thing like, say, we say a high-performance computer, but also to friendly countries who resented it bitterly, as Mario has just explained, resented bitterly having to have American firms first to get confirmation from them, guarantees from them, shall we say Siemens or Philips, that they will not sell that onto the Soviet Union uh, because, in effect, the United States didn't, didn't trust them to unite themselves behind the United States around the concept of national security and what was required to protect it. 
it also raises some odd questions about, well, if you're selling it to me, then surely it is now mine. Um, And yet if there are restrictions of what you can do with it, it isn't really yours, is it? No, it certainly is. And was understood as a dilution of economic sovereignty by these countries. And there are certain very famous cases, uh, especially with selling oil and pipeline material, which is very contemporary uh, to Germany, um, very, very, very controversial and very conflictual cases in which countries really became very angry about the fact that they had to go through, friendly countries had to go through this rigmarole of having their own firms and their own governments back them in saying, we will not divert that to the Soviet Union or to the communist bloc, shall we say, to China. Yes, it caused a great deal of friction. Yeah, and it is quite remarkable to see that uh, American law has here in this realm a, a very distinct extraterritorial reach. So as you said, Miranda, um, certain technologies don't belong to you even if you buy them. So uh, one of the the key ideas here is that even if you buy it, let's say uh, you are in in the UK and you have it there uh, and it has certain American technologies in there, so maybe a, a spare part or maybe IP that went into building that spare part, then this part still has an American identity and never loses it. So whenever you want to then resell your technology to a country of concern, let's say in uh, East Germany or Romania, uh, it would still be necessary to get a license because of the, the American identity of that technology in the object you own. And that is very counterintuitive, as as you basically uh, show here, but that's actually how export controls argue and work. Uh, so it is very. Th- that's also why we were so fascinated with with them, uh, and we wrote this book because they are challenging a lot of the the assumptions we have about how the world works how economics work, how trade works, how scientific internationalism works. If you look through the lens of export controls, many of these things look very different. (laughs) And that's interesting, I think. I certainly learned a lot from the book. um, So I think it definitely does that. And before we sort of move further in the chronology, um, why did countries, these friendly countries, why did they put up with this? That's a good question, actually. So uh, one of the main reasons probably is that they were also dependent on American technology. (laughs) So if they wanted to have access to certain technologies, they were basically forced to accept the rules of of accessing these technologies. So there was always kind of the fine print, right? So let's... Think about the computer again, because computers were really important in the export control world. So if, if a German company wants a, a state-of-the-art computer, let's say in the 1960s, one of the main sources of the state-of-the-art technology was the United States. If you bought something uh, from uh, a U.S. company, in the fine print, there was always a reference to the export controls, basically, saying you can get this, but only if you subscribe to export controls. So uh, the U.S. technological lead, which was kind of one of the main aims of export controls, was also one of the main levers of export controls. 
So whenever you have an, a, a technological lead, you can actually exert export controls, even on friendly nations. And then uh, we should not forget we are still talking about the Cold War. And uh, even though there were, was a lot of controversy about uh, export controls and their scope, uh, it was always clear that the enemy is behind uh, the Iron Curtain. And there should be some pushback and there should be some regulation. So there is a Cold War consensus still in place, uh, despite all the frictions within the alliance. That makes a lot of sense, um, perhaps unfortunately. Um, but then as you detail in the book, as we move, obviously still in the Cold War period, but in the 1970s, the world economy changes rather a lot. Um, and in this realm in particular, Japan becomes a really important economy. How does this impact export control regulations? Well, uh, shall, shall I say a word about the 70s and then Mario will say something about Japan? So the important thing about the 70s is that by this time, uh, the European economies and global economies have really caught up a good deal with the United States. The technological gap has been closed. In the early early 50s and 60s, the gap between the United States and other countries in the world, all over the world, I mean, consider the state of Western Europe, including Britain, France, and Germany, they were in ruins, and they were not in any position yet to compete on an equal playing field with the United States. So the United States didn't really worry too much. It could, it could, it could chastise them if they, if, they, if they abused export controls and, and, shall we say, let something sneak away to the Soviet Union. But basically, they completely dominated the global market space. But by the 1970s, many of these countries have caught up. They've become almost multinational companies have formed, global companies have formed, and the United States finds um, its trade advantages and its leadership being massively diluted and reduced. I think for the first time in 1972, for the first time in about since the 19th century, the United States has a trade deficit. Other countries are competing strongly with the United States on the world market. And it gets extremely worried about that situation because that its leadership is being diluted and other countries are becoming major players. And as they become major players, they can become more determined. They can push back harder. I mean, West Germany in particular is important because it opens out to the East with its Ostpolitik. And of course, there they play a great insistence is on trade. And obviously, if West Germany wants to actively collaborate with East Germany, its concept of national security is not at all the same as the United States, which is one of containment of the entire Soviet bloc. And so we have these frictions emerging. And at this time, then, the United States gets extremely worried during the period of detente that, um, that not only is it going to lose its lead to other European countries, but the Soviets are becoming much more, of course, capable technologically. In fact, the reason, one of the main reasons for the change is that they, they, they notice that Soviet trade missions during the period of detente are doing a great deal of what you might call industrial espionage, but it's very informal. When they go to visit a factory and show an interest in, shall we say, a very, very sophisticated machine tool, they find that the Soviets ask endless questions about the technical workings of the machine tool. They take photographs of it. They go way beyond what's available in the technical manuals. They even try to get hands-on experience with it. And they begin to realize that actually what the Soviets want is not the commodity but the knowledge and the know-how as to how to make the commodity and how to improve it. Um, and that's when they begin to worry about 
we better re-emphasize or put greater emphasis on the importance of knowledge, technology, and know-how, because that's what the Soviets want. And funnily enough, a decade later, just to end my little bit here, the Chinese show exactly the same need. They are less interested in buying, shall we say, machine tools. Um, they're much more interested in buying and in acquiring the knowledge and the know-how about how to make them and have a nice little metaphor it. They want the, ch- the hen and not the egg. In other words, they want to know, they want to go upstream from the egg to understand how the egg, the hen produces the egg so that they can produce them for themselves and become more autonomous. And this is really when the alarm bells begin to, to ring in the 70s and then in the 80s with China. But what is it that actually our rivals want from us? It's our knowledge, it's our know-how, it's our technical input, not just the things that we make. Then, of course, in the 80s, we have the Japan crisis, which Mario is, is, has worked on extensively, and he'll, he'll talk about that now. Yeah, so uh, what, what uh, John described here, I think, is, is very interesting uh, because the, the 70s are really kind of a watershed decade. Um, we should not overemphasize that, but I think two trends uh, John, John uh, made clear and how they are also intertwined. So one is detente, opening up uh, kind of the the Cold War order in in order to have a little bit more cooperation and exchange. And that is in itself already a a challenge to the export control system because it is actually against its change, right? It is about limiting contacts. It's about limiting uh, the flow of ideas uh, and knowledge. Uh, but detente as, as an American policy, but also as a Western European policy, uh, is basically starting to open up the system. So that's a big challenge. At the same time, uh, we have uh, capitalist globalization going on. So what John described as the catching up of, of uh, Western allies uh, in the economic realm. And globalization, again, uh, is a big challenge to, to export controls because it enhances the flows. It is, enhances uh, the, the way um, uh, economics are intertwined and start to exchange knowledge. And those two strands uh, uh, combine in the 1970s in a kind of really uncomfortable uh, way sometimes. In the 1980s, there is a, a shift. So detente is dead, basically, with, with uh, the invasion of uh, the Soviet Union in Afghanistan in the late 70s. Uh, so detente uh, and, and the loss of knowledge to the Soviet Union uh, is basically, again, addressed along the Cold War lines. But the globalization part of the story uh, then enters basically the center stage of, of uh, export control debates in the 1980s. And Japan, indeed, is the main reason for that. Japan, we should uh, keep in mind, uh, is uh, in the 1980s still the closest American ally in, in the security sense in the Pacific region. So it's not just any uh, partner. It is a crucial strategic partner for uh, the U.S. global order of the Cold War. But Japan also becomes more and more an economic competitor. So the catching up process uh, John talked about is, is uh, specifically interesting uh, in the Japanese case because uh, from the 50s and 60s on, uh, the U.S. actually supported this catching up process. But 
uh, in the 70s and then especially in the 1980s, the U.S. Uh, actors became increasingly worried about uh, this catching up because uh, Japanese uh, cars entered uh, the American market, J- Japanese uh, um, electronics entered the market, and especially Japanese computers uh, became uh, really competitive. So much so that computers and semiconductors, so computer chips, uh, started to basically um, destroy more and more parts of of the American uh, um, semiconductor industry. Destruction is is a strong word, uh, and it's not true, but in in the perception of of, uh, American uh, semiconductor producers, this was a a typical rhetoric. And it's in this moment when uh, the U.S. uh, export control community discusses more and more openly to use export controls as something you use against a friend, which is Japan. So the question is, how do you regulate the knowledge exchanges with a friend in order to keep him a little bit behind so that you can keep your technological lead? And since we are talking about technologies which have a uh, a civilian application as well as a military application and semiconductors are really uh, the, the prime example for that in the 1980s. Um, the concept of economic security actually enters the picture as we, we pointed out at the very beginning because economics and national security are in the technological realm really densely intertwined. And that's why uh, it became something like a logical step to think about using export controls against Japan. And that actually happened in some, uh, in, in several uh, um, kind of um, high profile cases in, in the late 1980s, early 1990s. Thank you for taking us through those two really important impacts and shifts that very much changed the calculus of kind of the US having this monopoly um, that we, we talked about, you know, why did countries put up with this? Um, this really shows a change um, in what the US kind of feels able to do or how they relate to the rest of the world. But I want to sort of bring it now into the domestic side in a way, um, and in a lot of ways closer to home, to academia, um, because export controls do impact research and academic research. And you detail this in the book in a number of different places, which is quite helpful given who who is reading this probably and uh, those of us listening. So can you tell us a little bit about this aspect of export control regulations impacting academia, particularly around sponsored research contracts or the fundamental research exclusion? Yes, I'll start with that. Um, So what, 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 what was happening is that the, uh, the American government noticed that the Soviet Union was sending more and more people to American universities um, to learn an, a range of engineering skills um, inside uh, research universities, engineering research universities. And they became extremely worried about this because they, what they understood was that this was part of the general need of the Soviet Union to acquire American advanced technology and know-how. And they had a terrible shock in 1981 when a, uh, a special agent handed over to President Mitterrand, who then handed over to, uh, to, to, to the American president, Ronald Reagan, in 1981, a huge collection of classified, previously classified information, 4,000 pages of KGB documents identifying 
one after the other of advanced technology, knowledge and know-how, which the Soviets were accumulating from Western countries, above all from the United States, in order to build their technological strength. And universities were part of the process. They understood that uh, even fundamental research was, was important for doing cutting-edge technologies. And there was an outcry about this and a recognition and a fear that the universities, which were, of course, traditionally open, uh, were being exploited by the Soviet Union to acquire and have access to advanced research, which could be turned into goods and services, which would strengthen the Soviet economic and military power. Um, this was accelerated a bit in the universities by two things. Firstly, a large number, the numbers of foreign students trained in the American university system, the higher education system, especially PhDs in science and engineering, began to climb heavy, strongly in the 1980s, many of them from the Soviet Union and later from China. And at the same time, there was a change in the practice of, of, of research in American universities through acts like the Bayh-Dole Act and the Stephen Weindler Act, which actually encouraged professors at universities to commercialize the results of their own research. In other words, people were moving inside the American research system further and further along the research and development spectrum towards the development end. So you found that foreign land students were doing a lot of work which could really ra rather rapidly be commercialized or turned into a military weapon if necessary. And so the alarm bells began to ring. The first idea was perhaps to stop this happening using export controls. And there was a strong pushback from that by, against the, by the universities against that, saying, if we're doing work that you judge to be dangerous to American national security, classify our work. If we're not, leave us be and let us keep circulating our knowledge freely in the tradition of the American and all basic research systems, because only in, in that way, through international exchange and circulation, do we grow and become better and stronger. In fact, allowing knowledge to circulate freely internationally will enable us to strengthen our position even more via VR rivals. Well, a special panel was set up to study that, and they actually found out that, or they claimed, that very little knowledge, very little useful knowledge of a military kind was leaking to the Soviet Union, but there might be some areas in which it was, uh, it was happening. But after a long debate inside the government, the government decided, and Reagan agreed, uh, that in fact the best thing to do was to carve out a space called the of fundamental research, which was translated into basic and applied research, which is normally published and not used for industrial process and development, and allow that area to be free of any kind of requirement for validated licenses. In other words, all fundamental research covered by the fundamental research exclusion was granted a general license. It's interesting to know that every paper that I published in the United States was automatically given a general license, otherwise it could not have circulated freely because it was not regarded as in any way dangerous to national security. This fundamental research exclusion is what most people work under unless they're doing work which is not publishable and in some way controlled by the government. So, of course, there was a concern about, well, then, uh, is there, have we got any mechanism of controlling university research well, now that we have this in place? And the, the decision was that, yes, of course, there's one way we can do this is through research contracts, which are uh, sponsored research contracts in which we write into the contract the terms and conditions under which the research can be published. Uh, for example, we need, we need the possibility to review it first before it's published to see that no sensitive information is released through the research. 
Um, that was compatible with the First Amendment, which is also plays a big role here, because the argument was that if somebody signs the contract, they accept the terms of the contract, and if the terms of the contract require that we have a prior, the possibility to, to review it before it's published, that might be regarded as in violation of the First Amendment, but it cannot be because they lose their First Amendment rights by signing this kind of research contract. So the constraints on publication, when that was needed in sensitive areas of research, was, 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 was embedded in the, the research contract, whereas if you, didn't, if, you, if you could get a research contract which didn't have those kinds of constraints, you were protected by the fundamental research exclusion, which meant that you had a general license to publish and to circulate your knowledge with anyone you wished, including, of course, a foreign national. It, it's a very odd idea, this, but actually sharing your knowledge with a foreign national on American soil is regarded as an export because you, on the assumption that that person will eventually go home with that knowledge, take it out of the United States. And therefore, there's a, there's a whole category of exports called the deemed exports, which if you think you're going to share sensitive knowledge with, with such a person, including your graduate student, by the way, you need a validated license to do so. Of course, every effort is made to avoid doing that, but the possibility of the government demanding that you take out a validated license for deemed export purposes is there for the reason that just teaching a foreign national from some countries might require, and it still does, and certainly it will for, say, people from, shall we say, Iran or North Korea would require a validated license to do so. Would you like to add something to that, Mario? Yeah, I mean, what what I think is is uh, so interesting about um, the, this uh, element of, of export controls is that it's, again, kind of counterintuitive. Uh, Miranda, you, you asked uh, about the object that belonged to you. How is it possible that it's still regulated? And here, uh, the counterintuitive thing is maybe to most of our listeners that export controls are usually intuitively placed in the realm of trade. And universities are not usually not uh, uh, seen as part of the trade world, right? So, uh, it, but if you look at the impact of these controls on knowledge and know-how, then it, indeed it makes perfectly sense, actually, that you start to think about regulating academic institutions. And that's what our book uh, actually shows, how... Uh, universities step-by-step step become part of the export control world. So it starts basically uh, in, in the realm of regulating business companies, um, but it becomes more and more also a tool to regulate the scientific exchanges. Uh, and so th that, I think, is really interesting Uh, and needs to be uh, kept in mind because otherwise you you just don't understand the the in, uh, incredible impact of export controls uh, on uh, American academia. The second point I want to emphasize a little bit more is when we talk about the fundamental research exclusion, which is a on at, at first sight a very technical, uh, by the way, also very short text. Um, If you think about it, you have to realize that actually what, what is academic freedom in the United States is very much also defined by export controls through the fundamental research exclusion. So if you are interested in how academic freedom works, 
especially in, in international exchanges. And our books shows that you actually have to know something about export controls. And I think um, that's one of the, the, the bigger um, contributions our book is, is making, actually, to, to open uh, the eyes for, for this dimension. Yeah, I'll like just make a, just a quick footnote to that, perhaps for people who don't work in an American research university or an engineering school as I did. I mean, the Georgia Tech has an export control office uh, and all its faculty and grad students in the engineering and science schools are trained in the basics of this. And in fact, there, there is a whole association of university, American university export control offices with about 220 members from multitudes, about that number of higher institutions in the United States. It's institutionalized now in the United States. The need to have export control training and export control awareness in American research universities in science and technology. Yeah, I I think it's probably equivalent um, in the UK uh, to GDPR and how that's something that lecturers and in my case, social sciences, uh, we get training on that, even though it's a law that has to do with EU regulation and all manner of things. Um, thank you for explaining that, Mario. I do agree. It's one of the big contributions of the book, um, even for the audience, you know, quote, just of academics. There's a lot of us, and this is something that impacts um, research in a way that I think a lot of us are not aware of. So I'm really pleased that that was a key part of the book and that that contribution was so clearly made as well in the interview. Um But I want to kind of move, as we come to the sort of ending bit of the interview, um, going back to the international and going back to, John, something you mentioned at the beginning of China, uh, which is kind of where a lot of these debates in the American foreign policy sphere are now. Um, And you detail this in the book, um, helpfully talking about the 1990s. You mentioned before, kind of China starts to come in and look at the factories and look at the technology. And then, of course, um, with Trump and how that administration deals with export controls, especially around China. So I'm wondering if we can kind of talk about those two time periods. And so particularly with the 1990s, you detail that a lot of the kind of uh, controversy and debate around China and export controls was around satellites. So what exactly were the rules at that point in time? And how do we know whether or not they were effective in actually controlling these exports? Ah, Well, the first thing to say, I think, is that, of course, with the end of the Cold War, there was a large amount of discussion about whether export controls were needed or not. And there was some push to have to to do away with them altogether. And indeed, uh, they were removed on large numbers of, of goods. And the COCOM, which Mario mentioned at the beginning, the Coordinating Committee for Multinational Export Controls was, was abolished. A much weak, loose, larger, but also less effective in terms of uh, imposing constraints on nations called the, was put in place called the Vassanar Agreement. And there was a huge amount of trade, uh, with beginning, of course, above all with China. And the aim was, uh, the reason for this was obviously the, 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 the China market beckoned. China was opening up. People were very excited about having the possibility of breaking into the Chinese market, especially in a large number of very advanced technologies, telecommunications, space, um, computing, uh, machine tools. uh, These were some of the key areas in which uh, Chinese economic modernization was occurring and in which American business especially wanted to have a a large impact on. And and Clinton was the one who decided that this should be a key feature of his of his strategy with China. He was the one who said, 
economic security is national security. In order to compete in the global markets, we need to compete first and foremost economically with high-tech companies that manufacture goods which are dual-use chips, for example, which can be equally used inside a satellite for commercial purposes or a satellite for military purposes. And so there was a huge push to open out towards China and to send a large range of high-tech goods to China with a very low level of export restrictions in the early 1990s. Um, Satellites were particularly interesting because in the late 1980s, Reagan, who of course actually um, turned strongly towards China and began building important trade links with China in the 80s, partly to drive a wedge between China and the Soviet Union, signed a contract which enabled American satellite manufacturers to fly their satellites on Chinese Long March rockets. This happened after the shuttle exploded and the shuttle fleet was grounded. And it happened because they did not want to use the European launcher Ariane if they could avoid it. I mean, it was simply trade competition with the Europe. And China offered them launches at a lower price. And so satellites became one of the central technologies, not the only one, the other one, the second major one was high-performance computers, which we touch on in the book, which we don't develop extensively because that's been done in other work, and also telecommunications equipment, which we touch on, but we we concentrate on satellites in that particular chapter and later because they became the the flashpoint for a huge conflict between Clinton and control hawks in the American American Congress um, because they claimed that by allowing this kind of interaction to happen, allowing American firms to fly their their satellites on Chinese rockets and to help the Chinese find out why there were accidents in American rockets carrying their satellites into space. They were giving away very sensitive and important know-how and knowledge, which could not only improve Chinese rockets, but also improve Chinese missiles. This played a huge, and this played an important role, by the way, in Clinton's impeachment and in a strong tightening up again of export controls in the late 1990s and into the 2000s. So when Trump comes along, there's already a tradition put in place of a heavy confrontation by the conservative Republican, a group of conservatives and Republicans inside the Congress against opening out too easily towards China, as I say, putting business ahead of national security. And Trump uh, reinforces that both on the academic side and on the business side. I think I'll let Marius speak about the business side and then I'll say something about the academic side. Yeah, so so what I would like to, to emphasize a little bit more is really um, how much the export control system is capable of adaptation to changing uh, political frameworks. So... Uh, we started our conversation basically in the 1940s, right? So we, we are now um, something like uh, 40, 50 years into the story. And uh, as, as you might remember at the very beginning, I pointed out that uh, at the beginning in the, in the late 1940s, there was this idea maybe export controls should not be in place at all and we should dismantle them as soon as possible. And we see that through all the changes of American foreign policy since the 1940s and also uh, through all the changes of the global economy, of the uh, international order, of the political uh, international political system, uh, export controls were always around and they were adapted to new contexts. So when the Cold War ended, that would have been a good moment actually to get rid of them. 
But uh, several things actually came together so that export controls were uh, uh, still in place in the 1990s. One is Japan, economic security thinking and the, the um, challenges on, on global markets. The second is um, still kind of thinking about, yeah, the Soviet Union is, dis, is, is falling apart, but does this really mean that we are on the safe side? And the third thing uh, uh, was uh, non-proliferation policy, because uh, there was this argument, maybe we need export controls against uh, rogue states like Iran, Iraq, uh, Libya. And then in the 1990s, in the late 1990s, China enters the picture more and more. And I think uh, this is actually really important to understand also the current debates, because a lot of the the public uh, discourse uh, pretends almost that uh, uh, the Chinese-American clash is very recent. And uh, as John pointed out, no, actually, during the Clinton administration, we see already huge clashes. And those huge clashes are really uh, the background story we need to understand the current debates, starting with the Trump uh, administration. So with this long backstory, it is then interesting to see what actually happened during the Trump administration. So uh, I want to uh, um, focus on two things. So the first thing is the business side, John already alluded to. And what we see is that in the um, uh, growing tensions between uh, China and the U.S., uh, business companies become really a focal point of of, uh, basically attack. Because what what, uh, the Trump administration does is it it uses export controls to uh, regulate, for example, the technology exchange with companies like Huawei or ZTE. And what we see here is uh, really kind of economic security in action because um, the argument is usually these companies are a national security problem to the United States, but this is actually really very much also about global competition for markets. So it's about 5G, for example, as, as a telecommunication technology and the question who is going to to dominate uh, the market. And so there is a strong um, uh, competitiveness aspect to it. And the Trump administration showed actually how powerful export controls can be used in in this uh, economic security realm. Because Huawei uh, was uh, hit very hard with with regulations. And uh, up to the present day, it's actually struggling because uh, it uh, has no real access to the American market anymore, and especially to, to uh, certain American technologies anymore. Um, so what we see here is really the use of export controls uh, in, in this uh, sometimes murky area of, of economic competi- competition and national security concerns. The second point I want to uh, make uh, very brief, is that the Trump administration, together with a uh, surprisingly um, a harmonious uh, uh, Congress in this realm, uh, actually uh, made the export control um, uh, legislation for the first time since 1949 permanent. 
So whereas uh, before that, there was always this fiction that uh, export controls are going to go away at some point. The Trump administration and Congress together uh, actually made export controls for the first time uh, since the Cold War permanent. And I think this is really a momentous uh, um, uh, episode in the in our history because you can actually see that export controls are here to stay. Uh, they are not really a historical relic, but uh, really kind of uh, an important uh, weapon in an important policy field of federal uh, policy in, in the presence. John. Yes, I'd just like to add as a footnote to that about, about um, one, one of the smart things that Trump did from the American point of view is to give an incredible amount of new importance to an institution called CHIFIUS, the Committee for the Commission on Foreign Investment in the United States. What, he, what the Americans found, that in, consistent with what I said a bit earlier, is that Chinese companies were buying in more, large parts, buying into American technology firms, which were manufacturing highly advanced goods in the United States. And it's a very clever way of the Chinese to have access to the technology, the manufacturing technology that that firm had by becoming a major shareholder in the company. They could get access to the knowledge that might have been denied them otherwise through export controls. And Chifius which was already present in the 90s, I believe, uh, was strongly strength, was strengthened immensely to make it very difficult, if not impossible, for Chinese firms to get major shares, and not only Chinese, French companies too, for example, major shares in, a, in manufacturing technologies and manufacturing companies, uh, which would, in, which were central, seen as central, strategically central to American either economic security or national security. So again, totally against uh, what you might call free market principles, principles that, that, that manage foreign direct investment. And at, of course, at the same time, he tightened up massively on, on universities with the agreement of the universities. And now um, it's, very much, it's much more difficult to, 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 uh, to, to, to work freely as a Chinese student in the American university. There are much more controls on what you can do. It's more difficult to get visas for certain kinds of fields. Universities will not accept money, for example, from Huawei, and all sorts of other little constraints, which I won't go into in detail now, are put in place to make it very difficult for Chinese students to work on American campuses and exchange freely and interact freely with their American colleagues. For example, you might have a Chinese student and an American graduate student working in the same lab, but the American student worked behind a locked door and the Chinese student has no access to his workspace or her workspace and the technologies, the, the, the computer programs that he or she is using, the results that he or she is getting. This is kept compartmentalized as much as possible to avoid knowledge flows to China. And this, of course, is leading many Chinese students to wonder whether they should study in the United States any longer. Yeah, and I, I would like to add just one more thing, because uh, I think one of the qualities of our book is that it's really long durée. It shows really the, the long history. So uh, we start basically in World War One and cover uh, 100 years of, of uh, export control history. And uh, CFIUS is a good example to, to understand why this actually is very helpful, because CFIUS indeed uh, has become kind of a center uh, a point of uh, the um, debates about technology transfers to, to China because uh, money is uh, more and more seen as, as a, a way to access technology in the United States. 
But Cepheus uh, uh, became already earlier uh, really important because uh, the way Cepheus is set up today um, it was established really in the late 1980s as a reaction against Japan. Uh, so Japan was uh, in many ways um, uh, the the main uh, um, problem in the 1980s, as I pointed out earlier. And uh, foreign direct investment from Japan was seen as a way of, a, of a technology acquisition in, in the United States. And CFIUS was then strengthened. So we can see actually how the regime, uh, again, adapts uh, to kind of different enemies uh, back then it was Japan, today it is China. And without saying that it's the same problem, we can actually see how the system and the bureaucrats within the system use the tools in a kind of creative uh, way and adapt to uh, very um, markedly shifting uh, international environments. I think that's a key point, um, especially uh, I don't remember which of you sort of initially made the point earlier in the interview, the idea that this whole problem with trade and China and policy, it seems in some senses to be in some ways new, presented as a new issue. And yet, as you've both shown in this interview and in the book, um, these processes are really adaptable and do kind of come up again and again, even if from a news headline point of view, maybe the situations they apply to seem different, maybe only at a superficial level. So thank you for emphasizing that. Um, I would normally at this point ask you about something that was surprising, um, but I think that's already sort of been a thread throughout this interview. Certainly things I've been surprised about, things that each of you have sort of come across um, in your work before this book, in your work during the book. Um, So instead, I'll ask you perhaps... Uh, the more challenging question, but also the final one. This book is now out with the University of Chicago Press. Um, so what are you each working on next? Mario, you start. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I can do that. So first of all, I think um, I don't want to abandon export controls ever again, because I think they are really fascinating. And it is a research field that is not very well established, but it needs much more attention because I think uh, or we hope that our book will actually show the importance of export controls for uh, international trade relations, international foreign policy, uh, for um, thinking about uh, academic exchanges, for thinking about globalization, for thinking about the role of uh, the American state and the American government in the international system. And I think export controls are really a fascinating and very, very effective lens uh, for an an analysis of the complexity of uh, the 20th century in, in all these policy fields. So... I don't want to get rid of them at all. So um, even though I'm tired uh, because it was a it was a long uh, process and it was a, a hard research process, uh, but I, I really want to to explore more and more uh, how export controls work. So I I have actually since the the book has been published also written uh, articles on on specific problems like uh, export controls in the. Uh, high-performance computing world. Um, and there's much more to do out there. So there's also, maybe this is a, 
an invitation to everybody out there, uh, become interested in, in export controls. But uh, I also want to write, um, uh, uh, or I have planned already for a long time to write a book uh, and now return to this project. I want to write a book on uh, industrial espionage and economic espionage as a political problem. Uh, and I want to shed light on how economic espionage was perceived and discussed politically uh, since World War I in an uh, American-German comparison. So that's, that's, a, that's an ambitious project, uh, but that's what I want to write. And for myself, I, I, one thing I think I might do is try to go a bit more deeply into certain aspects of export controls that we didn't able to go into in detail in the book, in particular, this notion of extraterritoriality. As you said, it's very strange that you buy something from the United States, but that you don't really own it. Your economic sovereignty over that product is limited. And I think that's an expression of global American power and an expression of the limits of globalization as a way of thinking about the world, the way the trade system works. So I think I might just explore a little bit in some detail how export controls over technical data and tacit knowledge are actually implemented in practice, showing how the United States manages to use the licensing system both to restrain the goods sold directly to the United States and goods sold to its friends. At the same time, I have another book coming out in next in June, in June uh, called "Knowledge Circulation in the Glo Knowledge Flows in the Global Age: A Transnational Approach." It's a collection of edited article a collection of articles from a conference in Caltech, which actually treats export controls on movement of knowledge across borders. There's just one kind of system which controls the flow of knowledge across borders. I'm putting borders back into the thinking about globalization and showing how important when knowledge is at issue, how important what happens at the border is to understanding the flow of knowledge. And it's a wonderful collection of papers that covers the whole of the 20th century and a large number of fields, including agriculture. Mario has a paper on computers. I have a paper on satellites. There's a paper on patents written by a fine scholar. It's actually patents that were given to the British Admiralty and which the United, which they try to keep out of the hands of the United States around the time of World War I. So, and there's a paper on penicillin in World War II. And it goes right up to, uh, to the establishment of a seed, bank, a seed bank on the West Bank in Palestine, showing how knowledge flows are regulated by various actors, NGOs, but also governments and individuals. And I think I'm really looking forward to having that book come out and develop, um, have, a, have a panel at one of the professional societies about it and explore those ideas a little bit further. Brilliant. Um, well, it's very cool to see how both of you are so sort of inspired and spurred on by this topic and this book. Um, so while you're off having conferences and writing new books and all these other wonderful things, um, listeners can read the book we've been discussing most of this episode, which as a reminder is titled Knowledge Regulation and National Security in Post-War America, published by the University of Chicago Press in 2022. Thank you very much, Dr. Mario Daniels and Dr. John Krieger, for sharing your time and expertise with us today. Thank you, Miranda. Thank you, Miranda, for having us.